Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Tendy-Norman. Here we're part interview show, part book club, all Agatha Christie. And I am so thrilled to have with me today Paula Sutton. Paula is a content creator and author of the popular blog Hill House Vintage and the book Hill House Living, The Art of Creating a Joyful Life. Welcome, Paula. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Oh, I'm so happy for you to be here. And um, so tell me a little bit about your relationship to Agatha Christie's work. Are you a reader of her in general? Do you know a lot about her work? And do you have particular favorites? Well, you know, it's quite interesting because what I'm really known for is my um, love of cottage core and all things pretty and um, and vintage. And so I think a lot of people find it quite weird that I'm into um, murder mysteries. But um <laughs> It, it all comes from um, my childhood, to be honest. It came from um, a period of my life when I, when my parents lived in this country and I was a little girl and we used to actually watch films. So my love of, of the actual novels of Agatha Christie came um, firstly from watching the films. So we'd watch, I don't know, Peter Ustinoff and sort of Death on the Nile or, um, you know, my mother loved old Hollywood. Mm. So we would always have those old black and white films or, you know, as, as they went into glorious Technicolor. And that piqued my interest into, well, you know, what a fantastic story. And those sorts of films back in in, in my childhood, which is the 70s and 80s, you, you didn't want to come out of them. So once a film had ended and you sort of like submerged, immersed yourself so much into them, it was always a natural thing to go onto the book because yeah. books last longer in your mind and in your heart, I always feel. That's right. I think that the, often the film is like your first taster. And it's, um, you know, it might present the visuals, but the book is where you really get into the characters and you really start understanding um, the reasons behind um, people's motivation. And you hear the backstories, all the things that films often can't do. So, um, so yes, I went, started off, which is perhaps slightly unusual, but I started off with the films and then went into the novels of Agatha Christie. 
And uh, and of course, for me, I'm just so enchanted by visions um, and the feeling of the past. It's it's a very aesthetic thing for me. Um, I, you know, as a black woman, I obviously know that, you know, place me in 1920s or 1930s um, on the Orient Express. And I, I, I wouldn't have the same privileges as I have now, unfortunately. So I'm very aware of, you know, when you're when you're immersing yourself into that sort of um, genre, you're sort of in a bubble if you're into a certain period of time. That's true. Um, but if you can go beyond that and get yourself into the story, then my goodness, they're a brilliant romp of a story, aren't they? Absolutely. And I, I do think there is a lot of connection that people have to the aesthetic of her books, uh, mm. not only because of the time period, but because Christie herself is very good at describing mm-hmm. setting. Um, and and your kind of interest in that particular uh, vintage aesthetic, like what is it? What does it mean to you? Because I think, as you were saying, as a black woman, there the mm. time period means something different. But the aesthetic, in a sense, when we like develop a love for an aesthetic that maybe doesn't love us back with the time period, mm. there's a, a reclamation of sorts within that. Mm-hmm. What what does mm-hmm. that mean to you? What it means to me that the reason I'm so drawn to the past and drawn to a very vintage aesthetic, it's it's all coziness to me. Now, mm. my parents came over to England in the late 50s, early 1960s, and it was almost a period set in time in, in sort of London in the 1960s in England. My parents came from a Caribbean country. Um, in their mind, they had the queen as the um, the, the head of the Commonwealth. And so, you know, they were all brought up with, um, it's very different to how it is now, but they were all brought up with pictures of the Queen and um, and how she would live. And they they copied a very English, very British aesthetic. And, and what that meant is that the homes that they created when they first came over to England had a mix of Caribbean, but with very English, very British, almost more British than the British. So you had the sort of little um, knitted doilies that um, you would put your, as coasters that you'd put your glasses down on. And you had your lovely tapestry cushions and you had very, very English vintage feel. Mm. Um, and that's obviously stayed with me. I, I, you know, it's it's never left me. It makes me feel cosy and comforted and calm. And it makes me feel of home. And those sorts of films are all set in that time period that, England almost got stuck in for about three decades. Yeah. You know, and then suddenly, <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, suddenly the eighties came and everything was flashy and sort of like um sharp edged and um, you know, and white and bright and modern. Mm. But before that, we were sort of caught in this world of um of low light and, you know, sort of cozy times and being shops closing um half day on a Wednesday and nothing being open on a Sunday. So mm. there was this period of time that I remember as my sort of childhood and when I was a teenager and I and I do remember it with fondness where it was very old-fashioned in feel yeah and so when I look look at books I'm sorry read books or if I look at films that are of a certain period it does remind me of a lovely period of time even though as you say that the actual real period of time that we're talking about wasn't necessarily the kindest for 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 many people it's not even people of color it's, um, you know, anyone who was not a certain class, race or, you know, background. Yeah. So you know, everyone was having a hard time in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah. But there is a romanticism to it yeah. that is steeped in the aesthetic as opposed to the reality of what life was like at the time. Yeah. And what what are the pitfalls of romanticizing that 
have, that you have found and how do you kind of, or do you try to actively avoid them or do you just kind of take it as part of your work? Well, the, the, what the biggest um, pitfall, of course, is people assuming that, oh, gosh, wasn't it better in the olden days? Wasn't, you know, wasn't, right. wouldn't it be wonderful to go <laughs> back to those times? We, I wish we were back then. Of course, of course we don't. Right. You know, I'm very much steeped in 2023. I love being in 2023. Yeah. I just like dressing like Miss Marple. That's all. <laughs> No, I, but I love that. And you, I mean, when you were speaking about a lot of the elements that you love, the shops closing at three on a Wednesday and so on, it, I think what you're talking about is also a pace of life. And, exactly. and I think that the the Christie books really reflect that. And a lot of mm. it has to do with kind of these people who live in family homes, mm. um, you know, large manor houses where you go away for long periods of time, travel when it travel used to take months and months. So you would go away for Absolutely. half a year. Um, so I, I really do think that that what you're talking about in that pace of life is a lot of what people find so comforting because we do live exactly. in an incredibly fast paced world um, mm-hmm. and yeah. we'll never recover that pace, you know. That's it. That's it. And I think uh, and in many ways it's very good. You know, I know my children would um, be aghast if I wanted to sort of drag them back to 1930s, even just for the pace. <laughs> and um, I have I have a good friend called Dandy Wellington, who is um, a big band leader and a wonderful sort of um, content creator um, who lives in New York. Mm. And he has a motto and he dresses in fantastic sort of 1940s and 1950s gear. I mean, just the most amazing person. Mm. And he has a motto, which is um, vintage style, not vintage values. I love and that. It's a, Exactly. And it's such an important thing. And there's lots of people who sort of dress up in the aesthetic and they love to. I mean, it's it's a wonderful period of dressing, isn't it? Sort of like anything from the 1900s to perhaps the 19. I, I draw the line in 1969, the year that I was born. The <laughs> 1970s you can take. <laughs> 1970s on you can take. Yeah. But um, it's a wonderful period of dressing. But I think we have to remember that we are thinking, you know, so much of um, how we we look on the past is due to how beautiful it can seem yeah um it's not the reality of the people so vintage style not vintage values I think is a wonderful is a wonderful phrase to use yes and I think it sort of like separates the um the romantic side of what we're drawn to with the actual reality yeah and I like it because it also um it already takes on the criticism that I think a lot of vintage lovers get which is Mm -hmm. how can you love this period so much when so many people were treated so terribly and Exactly. If you address it head on and say, this for me is really about aesthetic, pace of life, craftsmanship, looking back on a period where I particularly like the way colors were used or the way windows were built at that time or whatever. Um, I think addressing that head on is the most perfect way to deal with it. That's it. I mean, I'm not going to um, refuse to use my beautiful dovetail um, furniture, you know, my furniture that's been made beautifully and Mm -hmm. comes from a certain age just because of what other people were doing you know I'm not going to go to sort of like plastic furniture that's going to break just because I'm making a stand you know my stand comes from my emotions and how I feel about a a certain period of time but um but you know what keep away from my frocks and keep away from the skirts because you know what they were they're a great shape they flatter me (laughs) you know and that's that's okay that's good absolutely and there's nothing more um like real than just standing by the things that you find beauty and joy in. I think that when people try to take that away from you, it's yeah. it's just such an unnecessary cruelty in life to have the things that you love and find joy in taken from you. I think so. I think yeah. it's all about understanding and knowledge and having your mind open to what something really means and where it comes from. Yes. 
and just being self-aware um, and not pretending to oneself. Right. And once you can do that, you can look at things, um, you know, you, you can look at things and see them for, for what they are. So the beauty of a chair or the beauty of, a, of um, an interior it can, you know, we can go and look at, um, you know, maybe Agatha Christie's house, and maybe there's a the the house, and it's it remains how it was um, when she died, perhaps, and we can appreciate that. Um, we don't have to always drag the ghosts of the past to be sitting in those chairs at the time when we're looking. You know, we can appreciate what we're seeing now. Yes, and um, the two can can live side by side. I feel often. Yeah, and we can also trust people to understand. The difference, mm. and you say, as the aesthetic versus the values, and um, mm. that—that's such a conversation that kind of the Agatha Christie community seems to be having, which is how do we continue mm. reading these books when not only are they set in a period maybe where the values weren't the same, but often mm. she uses slurs, she uses um, langu- language that we find um, offensive and inappropriate, and would never fly now. And um, and that's a, an ongoing conversation about how do mm. we as modern readers deal with these books because they're as popular as ever absolutely and and that is a very hard question because even my children I have um three children I've got um twin girls who are 19 years old and my son is 22 and they had no idea about the original title of and then there were none yeah you know they've seen the film adaptations they know that I love um a a good Agatha Christie novel but they were shocked to realise that originally there was a completely different title. Yeah. And 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 it is hard to sort of reconcile the two things because the story, if you take that away, the story is a great story. It's a great murder mystery. But at the same time, how awful that um, the title was is, is so bad that it had to be changed, you know. So you, you do have to sort of think on, you know, people shouldn't just be blindly forgiven, I suppose, for... Um, you know, for attitudes and theories and whatever. There are lots of people, there are enough people who were um, very open to progression and who understood the problems with certain words and certain phrases, mm-hmm. even back then. Yes. So it's not that we should give a blanket, you know, oh, it's it's fine. But at the same time, um, you know, in terms of a story, as a storyteller, She's an incredible storyteller yeah. as a as a as a person who creates these amazing characters that you actually really want to get into the backstory and you really want to sort of understand and analyze their mind. She was she's great at all of that. Mm-hmm. So there is a balance. There is yeah. a balance. It's not a sweeping um, absolution. Yeah, it can never be. No. But at the same time, you know, I don't believe in burning books and getting rid of books either. No, so. I agree. And I, I also think with someone like Christy, there is nuance to it because so much of her work, particularly with her two main characters, is about being subversive within mm, um, mm. kind of British society at the time. So Poirot Absolutely. is a Belgian refugee. Mm. He is uh, he plays with his foreignness all the time mm-hmm. as a way of getting people to tell him more or trust him or not trust him. Um, Miss Marple is an elderly woman who people kind of just assume doesn't know what she's talking about. And they really underestimate her until she stands up and says exactly who the murderer is. And that's exactly the thing. It's that um, underestimating them. Mm -hmm. And as you say, they're playing on the things that um, were seen as um, lesser than or quirks or in the past, in the period that it was written. And, um, And the fact that that's actually a mainstay and a part of the novel means that 
Agatha Christie is in on on that. Yes. She's in on how ridiculous that is yeah. and how one shouldn't underestimate these characters yes. and how foolish um, people are for them, whether it's the misogynistic or whether, you know, it's they're xenophobic or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. She she's very aware and she's written that into the tapestry of what the novel is and um, yeah. and what the character is, yeah. which you know, you have to give her credit for that. She she knew how snobbish certain people could be and how they could be fooled yes. or fooled into thinking that they were cleverer than they they were um, because of that. So yes. you know, it's all it's all quite it's all quite interesting and quite yeah. clever how she's you know she's not there standing on her pedestal, um, sort of saying this is how it is and this is um, why this happened. She's she's going into deep characterization of of people. Yeah. You know. And that's right. And I think nasty traits as well. Very, very horrible traits, which, my goodness, I think, um, you know, I think we've proven over the years that we we do love a character with a nasty trait, don't we? There's something something quite appealing about getting into the nitty gritty of people who have faults. Maybe, I don't know, it's a sort of holding up a mirror to ourselves. And it's quite interesting to see how far it goes when it goes to its darkest, darkest sort of points, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a perfect moment to dive into the book we're going to be talking about today, which I'm so excited about, which is Murder on the Orient Express. Um, I'm just going to give a brief historical note before we get started. Um, Murder on the Orient Express was published in the US and the UK in 1934, although in the US it was originally published under the title Murder in the Calais Coach uh, because of a green book that was published at the same time called um, Orient. It's a Poirot mystery, and it has been on many lists as one of the greatest mysteries and certainly one of the greatest Christies uh, of all time. This is clear in the fact that it has also inspired many adaptations, film, television, radio, and even a very popular video game, uh, which is mentioned in our episode with Matthias Vestergaard, who talks about his love of this game. Um, those include the 1974 film directed by the great Sidney Lumet, uh, who directed a few of my personal favorite films, including uh, Serpico, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, the film stars Albert Finney as Poirot, Ingrid Bergman as Greta Olsen, and Vanessa Redgrave as Mary Debenham. It's a fabulous, fabulous film. And there it was also a 2017 version starring and directed by Kenneth Branagh uh, and a 2010 ITV television adaptation starring David Suchet as Poro, who of course we love, um, and also Jessica Chastain was in that one as Mary Debenham. And, and the ITV version actually is interesting because it's not a, um, a television length uh, adaptation, it is a 90 minute film, even though it was, it was on television. Murder on the Orient Express is a classic closed mystery in which all the suspects are on the train and no one could have either come in or left. It's also a great showcase for the, quote, little gray cells of Poirot, who shows his ability to solve a murder simply just by sitting back and thinking. It has an ending that would have been kind of like the perfect murder if Poirot just hadn't been on the case. You know, it's one of those, like, you darn kids from Scooby-Doo um, <laughs> moments. And uh, the central plot point, the murder of the child, is based on the murder of Charles Lindbergh's baby, which took place two years previous in 1932, which was obviously an enormous, enormous media case at the time. Um, the setting for the mystery was inspired by trips that Christie herself took on the Orient Express, starting uh, for the first time in 1928, um, as we know that so many of her locations are inspired by real-life experiences, and also a 1931 trip in which the train uh, that she was on, the Orient Express, actually stopped for 24 hours due to flooding, and that inspired not only the setting, but also a handful of the characters in the book, which we know from a lovely letter she wrote to her husband, Max Mellowen, uh, about that experience. Um, so that's my little note about the book. Um, Paula, would you mind giving us a one minute or so synopsis of Murder on the Orient Express? 
Mm, I will. I'll try not to be too many <laughs> in case somebody hasn't um, read the book. But, okay. Um, so it starts off. It's it the the backstory is that a small child, a little baby, um, has been kidnapped and um, and apparently ransomed by a gangster called Cassetti. And uh, unfortunately, the ransom is paid, but uh, it's revealed that Cassetti actually killed the, the child. So the child was murdered, which is very much along the lines, as you say, about the Limburg, which was a was a real um, yeah. mystery and murder that happened in the 1930s, which was a really horrible thing. I mean, even if you don't know um, about the Agatha Christie novel, you've a lot of people have often seen the headlines from the 1930s because it was the most dramatic and awful um, news at the time. And um, so we go to the train, um, which is the Orient Express, the beautiful, luxurious, um, <laughs> fabulous sort of like cross um, Europe um, train. And on this train, we have a an American businessman called Ratchet who um, I'm trying I'm trying my hardest not to, to do it in the right order. So I don't, don't give it away. And um, and several other passengers. Now, Ratchet feels that his life is in danger, and Praro ends up being called back to London. He's in the um, in the Middle East himself. He's called back to London, so he joins the train, and he joins the train, and everyone's already on it. Ratchet realizes that this is the famous Belgian um, uh, detective and asks for his help because he feels his life has been threatened. And subsequently, Ratchet is murdered. And nobody knows who the murderer is. Uh, the whole train comes to um, a stop in a um, this, this sort of like a whole snow and avalanche. And they're trying to dig the train out. And while they're trying to dig the train out, um, Hercule Poirot is the person who is trying to discover who killed Ratchet. And what we find out is um, a reason for many of the passengers on the train to being the potential um uh, perpetrator of the, of the crime and we eventually find out who or whoever could be <laughs> the um, responsible goodness me I want to tell I want I want to well it's well you see it's such I find it's such a good ending we are so used to whodunits yeah. where somebody it's very much like a play isn't it because mm -hmm. it's a play so you're very used to having um, all of the suspects in a line on mm -hmm. a chair on the stage. Yeah. And then you'll have the the investigator sort of talking through and it's always this very elaborate story where he's showing his skills of knowing things that people thought that he didn't know. And then suddenly it's ta-da, you know, that's the person who um, is responsible for the murder. Yeah. But this is this one is and this is one of the reasons I love it so much. It's such a beautiful um, it's such a beautiful sort of end. Well, the ending is questionable, you know, how he how it just kind of gets left quite abruptly. Yeah. But the fact is that they're all involved. They're all involved. And it's amazing. They all have a reason for um, killing Ratchet, who actually turns out to be Cassetti, if I may say that. You may. And, <laughs> you know, it's um, because he was responsible for the death of, of the baby Little Daisy. And, and they all have a reason for vengeance. And I think one of the reasons why I am particularly drawn to this one, and I think a lot of people are drawn to this particular novel, is because it's one of the few novels where we all feel, okay, no, we understand 
why, you know, not that I'm an advocate for murder. No, of course. <laughs> but we, we sort of all understand this one. We yeah. all we all feel the emotion and we all can understand how wrought and how distraught they've been. This is this has traumatized all of these people for so long. Yeah. And they have come together with one purpose, and that's that is vengeance, which of course vengeance is not a very nice trait to have. But when it comes to the death of a child or the murder of a child, I think there is a collective understanding as to what motivated them. And and that's perhaps what makes this quite unusual yeah. um, as a murder mystery in that as a as a reader, you can there's a part of you that can get behind it, you know, yeah. and totally understand it and, and sympathise in many ways, especially um, when. You know, he, he's shown no particular remorse and in actual fact seems to have gotten away with everything and is living a very fine and wonderful life, um, which, of course, he doesn't deserve to do. Yeah. So um, and I, I think that's why I was drawn to this particular one. Like you, you sort of feel you have an understanding as to why the events occur as they do. Yeah, that's right. And I think often Christie's quite good about not, um, you know, she'll kind of not overly judging victims mm. or, or murderers. Um, and I think in this case, um, the way that we get such a judgment of Cassetti is that he not only caused the death of the child, but he also, mm. there's this ripple, mm. there's this ripple effect where he also causes the death of the mother, the mother. and then the father mm. kills himself. And then the maid who believes she was being held responsible yep. also kills herself. Mm. And so there's this kind of ripple effect that goes on. And mm. so many people have not only died but then been affected by those oh. deaths um and he, as you say he seems to be living a very nice life he is living in fear of his life he's kind of allowing himself to be afraid for his uh -huh. own death and um just desserts right exactly <laughs> and um and it is one of the few times where i think it might be the only time where we really see poirot abdicate the role of mm. um of judge, um, yes. because yeah. he has the option at the end to Absolutely. turn them in, and he chooses not to. Um, and it's a very abrupt end, as you mentioned, um, mm. which I actually find very strange, and I don't know why it is written so abruptly. I wish there was a little bit more runway where we maybe see the train get back on track and uh, um, uh. see kind of everybody leave the train and so on. Um, but... Uh, why do you think it's ended so abruptly? Or do, I mean, does it bother you or not? I think when you're really into a book, you want more. Yeah. So yes, you you do you do want to find out what happens when they will arrive back. Do you do want to find out whether, um, you know, goodness me, maybe somebody actually feels the need to confess? Mm -hmm. Because can all of those people really, with a clear conscience, um, right? You know, can can they all live with what they've done, even though it may have been it may have felt good at the time. It may have felt like justice at the time and vengeance is a sweet thing when you're when it's being performed. But is it something that affects you even worse in the future? You know, the, mm. their lives have been destroyed in so many ways, but they've also, you know, added to that. Yeah, that's by, right. you know, you know, by being the murderers themselves as well. So, yes, I in in the sense that. I never want a good story to end. I would love to have had a more rounded ending. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think the minute you start analysing Poirot's thought process too much, mm -hmm. it's, it's great to find 
um, that he got to a conclusion. He understands. He knows what's happened. Mm-hmm. It's all revealed. We know why and we know what, what's happened with everybody. You then wonder whether if we continued, is he going to then have doubts? Is he then going to feel, oh, gosh, you know what, maybe that maybe I I do need to disclose what happened. Mm. Is he going to have to have a conversation at the other end with somebody who he can't lie to? Because at the moment he hasn't lied to well, he, he's going to. He's yeah. not he's not going to disclose what happened. But maybe we shouldn't go through those conversations. Mm. You know, maybe yeah. that's a bit too revealing. Mm. I, um I like maybe that. it mm, maybe it will sort of make cast a sort of different um view of how you know of how we view Poirot perhaps so so maybe you know how some things are meant to be left to our imagination mm-hmm. you know we've probably all got a, a sort of a resulting scene and then scene of our own haven't we yeah. that um we imagine what happens when when they um get to the other end maybe that's a good thing yeah I I love all of the points you just brought up what one of which is that imagining those characters having to then live with what they've done Mm. is actually quite daunting, especially because Mm. we learn so much about how gentle so many of the characters are Mm. and how opposed Mm. to violence so many of them are. Mm. And um, part of the reason it takes Poirot so long to get to the conclusion is that he doesn't see many of those people as murderers. He really doesn't, he doesn't believe they have it in them. And that's Mm. why so many of the stab wounds are so light because mm. they really didn't, you know, some of them are just because they're like the, um, the princess is very physically weak, mm. but some of them just simply did not want to stab. Absolutely. Um, so it's, um, it is. The plotting, it's so, so often yeah. the plotting and planning of a situation is probably so much, so much easier. I mean, we, I, I do it all the time. You know, I, I will sort of like say, um, you know, going on the day out or going to a, a special event and, you know, there's always that moment half an hour before the event where you're thinking, oh, my goodness, why did I why did I say I'd go to this? Why did I say I'd commit to this? Um, because the fun was actually in thinking about it and mm. sort of like the planning, what you're going to wear, what you're going to do or how you're going, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. So the they've had this awful tragedy on their minds for so long. Mm. Of course, the plotting and the planning is going to feel you know, almost invigorating. You know, they they really want this yeah. to happen. They need that vengeance. When you're faced with a with a human body, a sort of like a beating heart and warm flesh in front of you, yeah, and you know that you're going to participate in something that's going to cause the end of that. I mean, that's very daunting yeah. and horrible. And you know, it's um, you can understand why um, the mother is, you know, goodness me, a mother's a mother's love and a mother's anger at losing not only her grandchild but her her daughter, but also her um her unborn granddad, you know, yeah. she was, was pregnant and yeah. then and then her son in law. Everybody else, of course they've all got a reason to yeah. be angry and um and furious. But when you're then faced with a you know a beating heart in front of you, I mean that is awful, which is why, you know, they are um, they they are condemned to their own sort of prison, aren't they, afterwards? Yeah. Even if it's a prison of the mind, you're, yeah. you know, they'll, they'll never get over what they've done yeah. just as much as they never they'll never get over why they did it. I think that's so right. And it's it's the as I said, it's the one time Poirot doesn't play judge. And, you know, he has this line that appears throughout so many of the books where he says, I don't approve of murder. 
And mm. often in cases where um, the murder is justified, he'll he'll mm-hmm. still turn the person in and say, mm. I, I just don't approve of murder. I don't think we should be able to take God's will into our own hands. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the only case that he lets go. Mm. Mm. And um, so it's a fascinating one to me because it is a true out of character moment for a, for a mm. character who is so himself throughout every other mm. book. I mean, he's in 33 mm-hmm. books. And this is mm-hmm. the only only time that this happens. Um, so, but it's, a, but it's a very human thing, isn't it? Is. it? It's, it sort of brings him out of just a, a character that has certain quirks and certain um, very rigid ways about him, yeah. and it actually throws him into the human. Because, of course, you know, we all know that it doesn't matter whether somebody is the, a, the CEO of a massive company or whether they're a policeman or whether they're this sort or the other so much human sort of nature and sort of human emotion comes into every decision that we all make. Yeah. And there will all, of course, there's bound to be a time when we may go against certain beliefs or certain, our our conscience or something because of something else that interferes with the route that we feel we ought to go down. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a very human feeling and a very human response to, um, to trauma and to certain situations. Absolutely. And I, I do feel I, you spoke about kind of your gateway to the Christie's was the adaptations. And in, in terms of the adaptations of this book, of which there are so many, um, I do think that the David Suchet version captures that the best. He has a really, yes. I mean, he, he brings so much humanity to that character. Absolutely. Um, but that kind of ending where he, you can really see the distress in him having mm-hmm. to let this go, but knowing mm-hmm. that he ha- is going to. Um, is such a beautiful moment in that adaptation. Mm -hmm. Um, It unfortunately, I don't think really plays out that way in the 2017 version. And I can't really remember Mm -hmm. the end of the 2000 of the, of the 1974 version. Although I remember visually that film so well, because it's so beautiful. Um, Have you, have it's, it's, it's beautifully shot, but also it's um, the cast mm, of the Oh, the cast is amazing. Uh, my goodness. I mean, you've got Ingrid Bergman. You've got um, Lauren Bacall. It, I mean, it's 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 stellar, isn't it? And yeah. it's um, and also it's at a time when a lot of um, the actors, especially the female leads, were towards the end of their of their sort of careers. Or you mm-hmm. know, a lot of them, of course, acted for a long time afterwards. But yeah. in terms of their glory days, when they were seen as young and beautiful starlets or whatever on the on the silver screen. That's right. Um, and what what meaty roles for them? I think it's one of such a such a good film with so many good female characters yes. that they were really able to get into, which is which is brilliant. You know, if, if nothing else, that was so good as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and that the pl- I mean, the plotting is largely done by women, mm. um, and they kind of are the ones who figure out the ins and outs of of a very mm. complicated would be perfect crime. Um, of course, mm. only women could do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but you're right that, I mean, that, that cast for the 1974 film, uh, and particularly Ingrid Bergman's role as Greta Olsen. I mean, she was so good in that role. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And um, although I must yeah. say, I did, I loved Michelle Pfeiffer as well in mm. the 2017 one. I do think that she, I, I, I did enjoy her mm. in yeah. that one. I wasn't asking, although I did think, um, Kenneth Branagh did an amazing turn with the huge moustache and... <laughs> You know. He certainly had a big I mustache. Think, <laughs> he did he have had that. Fun. Yeah. He yeah. had fun with that character, that's for sure. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I love this sort of um, continuation 
um, mm. of films and reimagining of films you do. over different generations. I I really it it doesn't detract uh, for me to mm. see the different versions. I if anything, I sort of like enjoy it more and more and more. You know. Um, and as I say, I think it's when you really like a story, when you're really uh, engrossed and involved in a story, you want to read that book over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So in actual fact, to have different opportunities to see people's um, different interpretations of, of how it uh, how it all pans out. That's true. It's, it's quite it's, it's brilliant. It's great. You know, yeah. I don't think any of them have been awful. No, at and- all. You know, I've. I've I've enjoyed all of them, some more than others, but yeah. I've enjoyed all of them. And and it's such a great setting. Um, and I mm. think that is what is so wonderful about this book and why people keep adapting it. Can you talk a little mm. bit about kind of the aesthetic of the Orient Express and why you think that might be a setting that appeals to people? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's just a dream, isn't it? The <laughs> yeah. idea of, of being in... Um, in that sort of fantastic, beautiful sort of coach with the the lamps and the white um, linen starch tablecloths mm. and the upholstered seats, and it's it's this the whole aesthetic is so luxurious and gorgeous, but it's not sort of there's nothing tacky about it. There's nothing. Um, it's very over the top mm. luxurious. However, yeah. because it's set in a certain period of time in the 1930s, there's something sort of quiet lux about it it's sort of um very it's very genteel it's uh you know I think my goodness I mean I've never been on um the Orient Express it's now the Belmont isn't it but the Orient Express but it's something that I plan to do at some point I um I I love the whole because they've they've kind of kept it with that sort of old-fashioned um aesthetic even the um the staff are wearing the lovely sort of um porters costumes with the little hats and it's it's so beautifully done. It really is like you're stepping back in time. Yeah. And then, of course, you're looking through the windows and you're seeing, I don't know if you're doing the um, Paris to Venice, you're you are seeing the most incredible landscape, for yeah. instance. Um, you're, you're, it's bringing that whole, um, that, that whole period of time to life in the most beautiful and um, safe way, I'd say. Yeah. Because, you know... We've also got to remember, you know, the 1930s towards, you know, it wasn't the safest place to be, you know, whoever you were, it wasn't the safest place to be um, going through Europe, was it, you know, and sort of like coming from the Orient and into, into Europe. So it's one of those things where it's beautiful to imagine it, but once again, vintage style, not vintage values, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And and I mean, we spoke about the pace of life earlier, and I think mm. that, like traveling by train really falls into that category because mm. you know most people don't have feel they feel they don't have the time to travel by train as much no, anymore. It is a it is a luxury. Yeah. It is a luxury, but it's sort of um, you know, and especially a luxury to have you know, it's the fine dining, it's the the mm. amazing cabins to be able to sleep on a train properly. Yeah. You, know, you don't you don't really have that. I think we have it um in the UK up to Scotland. But even then, you know, it's nothing like um I mean you can take special trains, um, the sort of Belmont Express, which is the Orient Express, the mm-hmm. same style. You can take those specific trains, but if you're really just going to travel up to Scotland or something, right. you're you know, you, you might take the sleeper cabin, but you know, they're they're nothing like the Orient Express. Yeah. So it's the whole the, you know. The, the the upholstery, the the lighting, the whole mood of everything is slower paced. The fact that you've got your cocktail hour and, and, oh. and proper um, sort of like table service with the waiters, and then you've got um, 
you know, you may have a, a big band or a pianist there. I mean, it's in, incredible, like going to the most fabulous cocktail party in London or something or New York or I Paris. Know. I mean, the idea of changing for dinner on a train, you know, is like oh so foreign goodness. to us Absolutely. at this point. <laughs> oh. And, you know, I, I love the, the idea of having any excuse to change for dinner, but especially on a train. I mean, how wonderful. Um, you know, you're, you're making my juices flow now. I definitely have to book myself um <laughs> I'm gonna have to book myself a ticket. Absolutely, and and you said you've never been on this particular express, but have you ever traveled in this kind of like train setting? You know, I I've been on the train because um, I am from South London originally. I mm -hmm. live in the countryside now, but I'm from South London originally, and um, so my train to come into Central London was um, Victoria Station, ah. and the trains leave from Victoria quite often. And um, they go down to the coast and then you get you get on a ferry or something and order train and then get on the other train on the other side <laughs> to go to Paris. So I used to see that I've, I've seen these trains for years. I'd come in on my very normal run of, run of the mill train and see these beautiful um, trains of the carriages and um, the incredible sort of script written on the side. And then you would see the little lamps on the tables. And mm. I would think, goodness me, who on earth gets on those trains? Who go? Where do they go? And once again, the romance of it all. And you know that you're going to dress up together. There's no way you could go on those trains in jeans and a T-shirt, you know, not, not not that I'm a jeans and a T-shirt girl, but, <laughs> you know, you know that you're going to, my goodness, you want to wear a hat. You want to have a little, a, a turned brolly that's sort of like vintage, like a parasol or something, you know, you know that you're going to dress up and, you know, everyone else is going to sort of have the same um, care and attention mm. to what they're wearing just purely because they're on something that is, um so steeped in history and just so beautifully romantic oh that's so lovely um I want to ask you a question that I've I've been thinking about because I've been you know following you as a as a writer and a content creator for a long time and you've spoken a little bit about what it's like to be a content creator who's of an older generation mm. and how that can be a bit isolating because there are not mm. as many who are visible mm. um and that's something that I think within this book and also Poirot in general, I mean, he, mm. that is something that he experiences over and over again as a retired detective that people mm. kind of don't know who he is anymore. And he feels a bit out of it. Um, and maybe, uh, like he's losing, uh, like his, his name and his reputation. Um, and absolutely. I, yeah. And I was wondering mm. if you kind of feel connected to that in any way in terms of like, do you feel that the fashion and vintage, I suppose less so vintage, but like the fashion and content creation worlds are difficult to break into at an older age? I think it's very interesting, actually. And, and to, to um, use, as you've mentioned, the mm. parallel between myself and Poirot, yeah. as um, the books span quite a long period of time, yeah. you know, as you say, 33 novels. And, um, and I know towards the end, his style doesn't change, but of course the world has changed. That's right. And so he's got his spats and he's got his, you know, his turned moustache and all those things that were completely made him brilliantly dressed in the 1930s, mm. make him a bit out of touch, you know, a few decades later. Yeah. And, um, and as a woman, um, you know, I'm 53 now and I used to work in the fashion industry. I used to work for a fashion magazine. And I distinctly remember when I was in my 20s, I, I felt I was the height of fashion. You know, I used to go to the fashion shows and um, with the magazine and everything. And then I moved to the countryside in my late 30s, early 40s. And I had a period of time where I sort of disappeared. I sort of like withdrew into myself. And mm. it was a time of um, it, I was morphing into a different sort of person and my values were changing. And, and I was really enjoying my surroundings and living with nature and really bringing up the children and all that sort of stuff. 
And then social media started creeping into my life. And I I had this um, duality of this love of fashion for my old life. But my new life was all about, you know, growing vegetables and um, buying vintage furniture for my house. And so the the combination of those two things is why I became sort of Hill House Vintage, because to me, I, I didn't want to chase trends. You know, those days had long gone. It was all about, for me, having a timeless style, but, but still having fun with it. And vintage um, is a beautiful way of doing that. And my version of vintage, you know, not everything is strictly vintage. Yeah. I just have a vintage aesthetic. Yeah. Um, I like to have an essence of the past. The way I dress is um, is not necessarily. I, I do sometimes dress in real vintage, but you know, um, back in the nineteen forties, um, ladies tended to be a bit smaller than I am. So sometimes it's actually quite hard yeah. to get the, you know, those beautiful little nipped in waists um, the right size. But I I have um, yeah, it's it's just an essence and um, sort of an image of what the past may have been. My own interpretation. And I think I've gotten around the needing or wanting to stay relevant by stepping away from trying to chase chase a, a trend. Yeah. You know, I think it's wonderful when I see um, older content creators. They're not that many, but when you do see them and they're looking fantastic and they're trying anything new and whatever, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I find it exhausting. I've been <laughs> in the fashion industry. I, I know what it was like to try and keep up. I have no interest in keeping up with anything. Yeah. I just... I like to try and live life beautifully, as beautifully as I can. Um, and that also means having a beautiful mind, which is a calm mind and a mind that doesn't feel that you're missing out on something or you can't do something. And it's the best way to live life with positivity is not trying to keep up with something. So that's what I do. And it, and it seems to interest people. So as long as it interests people, then that's great. You know, mm -hmm. it's um, I'm just going about living my own sort of you know, relatively boring life, but, you know, people seem to like me kicking up a skirt or, you know, playing around with a watering can and wearing a pair of high heels in the garden or something, you know, I'm having, I'm, I'm having fun yeah. with it. But I think but, that's um, what people connect to is the, mm. is the fun that you have with it. And um, what I've always found so inspiring, as you say, you, not everything that you have on your, on your feed or in your book is, is vintage specifically, mm. but it's about, finding kind of within finding your eye I think because anything is. anything can mm. be made beautiful if you if exactly you, yeah if you exactly find the, the thing that you like yeah that that's it and it's um but also it, it you know I I'd like to think that Proro is so happy with his style that you know if he gets the odd dig or the odd sort of criticism you know when you find your happy place that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a good thing. And um, my, um, it's, it's funny, actually, my husband used to talk about his granny and his granny had this um, certain hairstyle mm. and it was a sort of 1940s wartime hairstyle. And he always used to say when he was younger, he couldn't understand why she had an old fashioned hairstyle. You know, why does granny not sort of like move at the times? Yeah. And it, it was only as he got older that he realised that um, it, we all, often wear or have things that remind us of our youth she was just yeah she was just wearing the hair that she had always worn in her 20s and 30s right for and, her that um, was young yeah and for her that was young and I don't think she was trying to be young but no, that's no. just what she did that's yeah. how she wore her hair mm. and I think that's wonderful she loved her hair like that and she did her little victory rolls her little sort of curls and she looked fantastic and it was wonderful 
And I think if if everyone settles, and it doesn't have to be from your own childhood, because I mean, yeah. mine, I, I love things from the 1950s and um, 1940s. And I can tell you, I wasn't around then. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's sort of, if you settle into a, a look or an aesthetic that makes you feel good and makes you feel happy, then gosh, blow anyone else. Yeah, you know, that's you know, right. Wear, wear your spats and have your big curly moustache, I say. That's right. And and I think the moustache is exactly Poirot's thing that he, you know, he gets he gets mocked for it endlessly through the yeah. books. And, and another thing for him that he's often mocked for is he's quite dandified um, yes. and he wears patent leather shoes um, mm-hmm. even when he's in the country. Mm-hmm. And to almost to a book, I think every time he has to go out walking in the mud and he's wearing <laughs> patent leather shoes, yeah. one of the characters says, oh, you really should have brought brogues. This was, you know, you're going to, your feet are going to be in so much pain. And he goes, I like to look smart. And, um, Absolutely. <laughs> and so he, Absolutely. he never apologizes. He doesn't apologize. And, and that's a very important um, thing, really, because you shouldn't be dressing for other people. Yeah. You know, the only people who are uncomfortable in that situation are the people who are looking and thinking, my goodness, aren't those um, patent leather shoes getting dirty? Right. He's thinking, aren't my patent leather shoes looking smart? <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and he's, you know, as long as he's feeling good in them, I always feel um, with me, I can never be too overdressed. You know, I'd rather be overdressed than underdressed. You know, if I go somewhere and it's a bit casual, I'm just like, well, I don't do casual. It's fine. You know, yeah. Your casual is just yeah. Your casual is just a few steps above everybody else's casual. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been so much fun. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to us. And and um, I hope everyone will who hasn't already. I'm sure many people already know. But Hill House Vintage um, is your blog and your Instagram, and we'll also link to your book uh, all in the episode notes so everybody can please go and check those things out and um oh, thank you so much is there anywhere else you'd like to be found or can the people find you somewhere else do you know um at, at the grand old age of 53 i'm sort of like i'm on tiktok now i, I can't are. even i can hardly <laughs> i can hardly even believe myself but i'm on i'm on tiktok as well oh so my God. um i just i like just um showing Pretty things. There is there is a few there are a few book things because there's a you know there's a few things in the um in the background that are bubbling up that'll be quite exciting and quite relevant to what we're talking about as well. So I won't reveal too much, okay. but um yes, it's um the mixture of beauty and mystery is something that will play a big part of my life in the future. That is so exciting. I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> and um I can't believe you're on TikTok. I'm not even, I can't bring myself to get on TikTok. It's too many platforms. I have, there are too many platforms. So many platforms, yeah. <laughs> isn't it? You know, honestly, so many platforms. But um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Um, social media is probably the thing that um, dragged me back into the um, sort of 21st century. Mm. So I, I'm sort of going with it. You know, my clothes are old fashioned, but my um, social media is up to date. <laughs> well, your, your Instagram account is one of, the Instagram accounts that I look forward to seeing in my feed because oh. I've kind of scrubbed everything that doesn't make me feel good or, you know, makes me feel bad about myself or any of those things that social media does to us that are not nice. I've scrubbed that all for my life. And so it's like flower accounts and furniture and vintage and just things Absolutely. that bring me joy. And I think your account is such, such a great an example. important decision. Yeah. Thank you so much. And that's so, that's so important. And anyone who's listening, do it. You, yeah. you own, you should have things on your 
in your eye line that bring you joy it's yeah. it's one of the most important things you can do for yourself you know nourish your mind and your body but sort of definitely nourish what comes into your into your brain you know and that should be good things even though we're talking about the horrific murder <laughs> mystery <laughs> but it took place but, on a beautiful train so that was <laughs> it's a beautiful train yeah. <laughs> and um yeah absolutely absolutely well thank you again so much for being here paula it was such a joy and um i hope you have a lovely evening Thank you, and you. Okay, bye. Thank you to our producer, Kate Crishell, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. To stay up to date and get some fun extra info, you can follow us on Instagram at TNMurder. Rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts really helps, so please do that if you feel so inclined. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please remember to follow us there and recommend us to anyone you think might need a little extra tea and or murder in their lives. Next episode's book is Murder in Mesopotamia. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We'll be back in two weeks. Don't miss us too much. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.